This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Louise Pearl is a savvy Canadian entrepreneur, a race car driver, and a woman who knows how to turn her problems and passions into a thriving business. Today, Louise will explain how all her life she's loved good food, all kinds of food. So it was a shock 13 years ago when she was diagnosed with celiac disease. Suddenly, she found herself going from store to store to find the products she needed and could like. As she struggled, she saw an opportunity to put everything under one roof for people who can't eat gluten. She made a career shift, and today she owns a grocery store and bakery selling more than 4,000 gluten-free products. Pearl, you have had a quite a varied career, from modeling to the high-tech wireless business to being a full-time mom for your, your two sons, and you did all of those things with great enthusiasm and energy, it sounds like. But then 13 years ago, you had a big shift when you had a, a crisis. Um, can you tell us about what happened when you got your diagnosis and what it was? Absolutely. Well, yeah, my, as you say, it was a, it was a crisis. Um, I was diagnosed with celiac disease. Um, a lot of people know what that is now. 13 years ago, I stared at the doctor and went, hmm, what is that? And when he explained that, well, you can't have gluten anymore, um, I had some knowledge, but very little, and um, ended up doing a lot of research and realizing there were so many things that I used to take for granted. Granted, And today, you know, just my new reality was, wait a minute, you have to check everything that you put in your mouth. Uh, so it was a big, big change, and it was a lot of adjustment, a lot of crying, and mm-hmm. a lot of learning. And it sounds like it was particularly tough for you because, at least on your website, you describe yourself as a lifelong food addict, as somebody who loved to eat and loved to eat all kinds of food, right? Oh, most certainly. Yep. Nothing, nothing was off limits. And so it sounds like you decided when you were grappling with all this to become an expert. That was your first step. What, what did you find out? What did you learn? Well, I think what it is is when you're trying to deal with something um, – as, anyway, for me, may it be this or anything else, um, I always try to get as much information as possible uh, just to be able to know what I'm dealing with. And um, I think the most frightening thing in the world is lack of knowledge. And most of the time when people are afraid of anything, it's because there's stuff they don't know. Um, they don't know the outcome, they can't predict it, uh, or they can't control it. So um, to me, for me, it's important uh, not to panic, and to avoid that and to get the information. And I remember one of the first things I did was ran out and got every single book that existed about, you know, celiac disease, gluten-free baking, cooking, diet, everything, to try and understand and get a grasp on it because um, 13 years ago it wasn't um, as common knowledge. And today I think it would probably be difficult today to find somebody who actually had absolutely no idea what gluten-free was. Um, Obviously there's a lot more information that people um, do need to get. But as a general rule of thumb, pretty much everybody has an idea of what gluten-free can be um, and where you find gluten. But 13 years ago, to me, it was 
it was a shock, and I started reading and reading and reading, and when I wasn't reading books, I was on the internet, and I was searching, and uh, as a byproduct of that, just to gather more information, I joined uh, the Canadian Celiac Association, uh, ended up on the board of directors of the local chapter here. Uh, also, during here in Quebec, we have um, two associations, one that is English and one that is French, and I joined that one also, and I figured, you know what, more information this is, yeah. is positive. Well, I think although people are much more familiar with the word gluten than they were some years ago, there's a lot of misinformation about it. I had a friend tell me recently she was going to cut down on gluten because she wanted to lose weight. Can can you tell us just what is gluten? <laughs> well, um, there, there's a good and valid reason why people believe that. Uh, to start off, gluten is a protein, uh, at least Every, just about every grain has protein, um, but the ones that are offensive to people who have either gluten intolerance or celiac disease uh, are the proteins in wheat, rye, and barley. Uh, as a byproduct, commercial oats that are processed in the same facilities as wheat uh, are highly contaminated, therefore off-limits for us as well. Um, there are some pure uncontaminated oats that the controlling, they control the, uh, the growing uh, facilities, the processing facilities, the packaging and all that, which make them accessible to most celiacs. If there's a tiny little proportion of us that still cannot tolerate even that protein, um, but as a general rule of thumb, it's okay. Um, so the misconception about our diet is, first of all, comes from the word diet. Yeah. Um, it, it was originally um, said to be called by doctors and dietitians when somebody was diagnosed with celiac disease. They would say, here is your gluten-free nutrition prescription. Basically, this is what you need to do to get healthy. Instead of, you know, prescribing medicine uh, or an operation, they gave us a little paper that said, here, here's your, your prescription to health is a diet. Avoid gluten. Um, but gluten-free nutrition prescription is kind of long, and so it got toned down over the years to the gluten-free diet. And the word diet brings up this idea of, you know, losing weight in just about everybody's mind. Uh, and if you add that to the fact that um, when you're eating gluten-free, you, you can't go to fast food joints. Uh, you can't eat just about anything, grab a donut on the run, whatever. So we are seen as having a much healthier uh, diet and eating much healthier. Um, and the byproduct of that is the image that people get from this. Well, I'm eating salads, I'm eating homemade soups, I'm, I'm not grabbing a burger on the run. So for that reason, people also understand that it is a healthier diet. And there are some good and valid reasons that, you know, obviously if anybody is going to avoid foods such as the ones that you get on the fly and quite easily, it is going to be a healthier diet for sure because as um, in general, we can't just go out and grab something anywhere. We have to think of our meals. If I take off on a day of errands or something and I know I won't be around somewhere or something I can eat at lunchtime, I'll have to think about that before I leave home just because I can't say, well, when I'm hungry, I'll get something. It doesn't work that way. So we tend to plan, and the more you plan, the better you end up. The, choice, the choices you make are much better. Well, so that does impact well, it's, it sounds like it can be a lot of work. So when you were learning all of these things, it wasn't so easy to, to shop gluten-free. And it, it sounds like you had to go from shop to shop and figure things out and get guidance as you went along. So that, 
that was the start of, of your idea of your own place? Absolutely. Um, it was quite frustrating, I have to admit, especially bear in mind 13 years ago, the availability of gluten-free foods were not, absolutely was not what it is today. Um, today, people tend to be able to find things locally, uh, but when I was diagnosed, um, I would, you know, spend at least one entire day a week uh, going from health food store to a tiny little specialty store that was like a half hour or 40 minutes away from my place, um, and hunting for the stuff that we needed wasn't that easy. Um, so I got fed up of thinking, hmm, I have to, you know, take one entire day to do my shopping, or if I go to a local grocery store, I have to read labels for a half hour. And I figured I couldn't be the only person who was frustrated with that idea and wanted to live differently. So I figured that in a certain way it would be a fantastic option to be able to go to one place, uh, get all the gluten-free things you need without having to worry about reading labels, figuring out if it was safe or not safe, and just... Because even in, in a regular health food store where, where you tend to find more gluten-free products, um, things are put on the shelf in the gluten-free section that shouldn't be there. And if you're not absolutely vigilant, it's happened to all of us to grab a product and you know quickly look at it and assume it's gluten-free and make a mistake and eat it. And the consequences are devastating. So I figured, you know, we need a safe haven somewhere where the only thing that is discriminated against is gluten. And that's kind of a bit... It was quite self-serving, actually. That's how I started out. I, I was thinking, well, you know what? <laughs> if it's not good for anybody else, it would be good for me at least. Well, I think a wonderful way to to start a yeah. business, particularly somebody who has kind of savvy business and financial skills, so you know what you're doing, but a wonderful way is to start with a need that you really, really understand. So you began with your own need and decided, was it, did you do this in stages? First you created a grocery store and then you expanded to creating your own recipes in a bakery? Or how did you go about starting your establishment? <laughs> and by the way, I want to um, mention the name and, and, and the website before you answer my question. It's louisesonsgluten.com, is that correct? For Absolutely. people who want to see the website. And it's a, I found it a really... Um, Nice website uh, for people who are trying to get some background. So how did you go about building your business? Oh, well, like just about everything I do, there's nothing moderate. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't start in stages. I just went all out and figured, ah, let's do it all. And, and in part, uh, there was some knowledge of the market, obviously. I'd been around it for a long, a long time. Um, but there was a lot of ignorance. And I think in some cases, ignorance is bliss. Um, Originally, what I really wanted to do was uh, create a bakery, but uh, six and a half, nearly seven years now uh, ago in Montreal, I didn't believe that just a gluten-free grocery could, uh, bakery sorry, could survive. Um, so combining the two, where you would have um, fresh-baked products uh, that really weren't available back then, uh, with the availability of all the other gluten-free stuff you needed all under one roof... I figured, you know, that would be a place I would love to go to. And um, I figured, you know what, I can't be the only one who is uh, in search of something such as this. So, no, I didn't start small. I just put you everything out in. there. And it was, you know, all in, let's go. And it turned out that I guess I wasn't wrong, uh, which it was a bit of a stab in the dark. Um, it was an educated guess. Um, and as I say, there's a whole bunch of things I didn't know. If I had known, I might not have been as courageous. 
Um, but it turned out to be absolutely fantastic. And it was a very, um, very gratifying and very fulfilling and a lot of work, obviously, but well worth it because I'm also involved in the community where it's not just, you know, selling food and making big goods and making money and far from it. Um, there's a personal attachment and there's a knowledge of being able to share the information and the knowledge that I've gained over the years and helping people figure out um, what it is to live with uh, gluten intolerance or celiac disease and helping them to get a kickstart and not make the mistakes that I made when I started out by eating stuff that I didn't know wasn't safe for me and then, you know, being sick and just starting all over again. So. I really, really enjoyed that part of my work to be able to help and uh, give some knowledge to the either newly diagnosed or those that are still searching for answers. Somehow the part of what you did that sounds the most daunting to me is that you committed yourself to coming up with really tasty baked goods in a world in which you know some of the products I've sampled have tasted pretty much like cardboard. <laughs> so you had to really kind of deconstruct recipes and how what do you have to do when you when you're making rolls or bread or cake without uh, wheat flour? What do you do? Well, it's it's all about substitution. Um, and once you figure that out it, it becomes quite easy. The chemistry is a, a slightly different obviously. The structure is different. Uh, we work with combinations of flours and you know Way behind me are the years where if I wanted to make any baked goods, uh, you know, you grab one jar and it's called wheat flour. Well, that was a learning curve because everything you make uh, needs a combination of flours and starches and, and a whole bunch of different things. And um, the difficulty that we have in gluten-free baking is texture. And the texture is one of the most important things in, in mouthfeel and all that. So. It's important to get the right balance in the combinations of flours and starches and gums and all that. Um, but where it becomes a little bit more intriguing is the fact that depending on what you're making, those blends change. So there is no, um, there are some people that have, there are some companies that is that have um, what is called an all-purpose gluten-free blend. Well, all-purpose and gluten-free really doesn't exist. It's pretty much all-purpose will work for products such as, you know, cookies, cakes, squares, muffins, etc. Um, if you're looking to make bread, it's a whole different combination of starches and flours because your flavor profile is created by the flours you use. Um, and if you're using you know, wet rice flour and tapioca starch, corn starch, it has no flavor. So you have to work with all kinds of different combinations. So basically every type or every category of baked good you're making will have a different flavor, a, a different composition of flours behind it. Um, and that's where it becomes a little bit more complex because there's a lot of trial and error. There were a lot of very heavy garbage cans around my house mm-hmm. uh, for many years until I figured out. And, and most of the recipes that I've created over the years um, were things that I created for myself before I even contemplated opening the store just because I figured, you know what, I'm entitled to have things that taste good, the textures are right, and that you really shouldn't be able to tell the difference between its gluten-containing counter- counterparts. So for me, it was a quest, a personal quest, and it turned into you know, success, I guess. It, well, it sure looks like it. I think that there may be people listening who uh, would like to have some of your product. Do you only sell locally, or do you do any online sales? 
I'm not online yet. Uh, it is kind of difficult to ship online fresh baked goods. Yeah. Um, but I am actually working on um, sales outside the store, so not uh, not necessarily online just yet. Um, but uh, I have a whole bunch of products and a whole bunch of uh, people who are interested in them. So I'm definitely working towards um, a much bigger distribution, and uh, this year should uh, bring a lot of development and a lot of products will be able to uh, be available at large, um, starting with all those wonderful flower blends that I've created. Um, those will be easier, obviously, to ship than would be, you know, a, a fresh muffin or something. Well, that sounds wonderful. So it sounds like there's going to be a lot of demand, but can you uh, comment on, as a percentage of the population, how, how big is the market for gluten-free products? Yes, well, it's a very good question, actually, because it's a question that nobody really has a definite answer to. Um, one thing that we do know is that the um, proportion of um, the population that suffers celiac disease is 1%. Um, of that, in North America, we're grossly underdiagnosed. So just a small portion of the iceberg is discovered. Um, then you've got the um, two other categories. Today we refer to it as the gluten-free um, uh, sensitivity or the gluten-free spectrum. Um, what it is is it encompasses those who have celiac disease, those who have gluten intolerance, and those who have gluten sensitivity. Years ago, um, if you said that you had issues with gluten and you were not diagnosed with celiac disease, you would probably be looked at and told by your doctor that it was all in your head. Uh, today they recognize that the, uh, the whole spectrum starts from sensitivity, goes through intolerance and celiac disease. And the difference between those um, in symptoms may be quite undistinguishable, but in reality the difference is that somebody with celiac disease, when we eat gluten, um, may it be in very minute particles, we get intestinal damage. Somebody with a gluten intolerance and somebody who is sensitive to gluten will feel discomfort in many ways, but they do not get the intestinal damage that somebody with celiac disease uh, gets. So based on that, the, um, the way that we treat the diet, um, the severity with which we uh, eliminate gluten from our diet will vary, um, but end of the, the end result is still the same that all these people need to avoid gluten. Um, it is said originally was um, the numbers that I had seen and I looked at way back when, uh, when I was looking to open the store, it was about 6% of the population who were intolerant. Well, that was grossly underestimated if I look at my business today because there are people who obviously are celiac, um, those who are intolerant, and the whole category of people who are sensitive to gluten um, just blow those numbers right out of the water because there are conditions that are affected by gluten but are not caused by it, uh, such as, you know, fibromyalgia. Um, a lot of people will, because gluten can create quite a bit of inflammation in the body. So anything that is inflammatory, if you remove products such as dairy and gluten and all that, that do create inflammation, you're alleviating a lot of the symptoms of this other illness or disease that you would have. And this is something that we don't have numbers on. But all I can say is that it even based on the 1% of the population that have celiac disease, I knew that the business could survive. Um, add to that the 6% of intolerance and 
then whatever percent above that that you have from those who are sensitive to gluten. Um, my estimate is that there's probably, for all kinds of reasons, both medical and just diet of choice, probably a good 20% of the population, if not a bit more, are actually going towards a gluten-free diet. And that doesn't even account for those who eat gluten-free as a byproduct. As an example, in my house, there's no gluten. Um, and, well, now pretty much kids are grown up. But uh, way back when, nobody else ate gluten in my family other than, you know, they had a separate toaster in their little corner and they had their own bread. But, I mean, you know, the dinner was always gluten-free for everybody and so were the desserts and everything else. So that whole portion that um, people tend to eat gluten-free because somebody else in their environment or their household or or their life um, is gluten-free, that is absolutely, uh, you can't measure that. But I can tell you through my experience at my store that it is much, much larger than we believe because it's a lot easier to, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. It's much easier, much safer in a kitchen environment if you eliminate gluten or at least isolate it. It's easier to isolate the gluten than it is to isolate the person that eats gluten-free. So that's, the numbers are very difficult to estimate, but I would say way above 20%. And, and you know just from the response of the marketplace that there are plenty of people to support your business and there's demand that you're struggling to meet with people who want to order and um, have expanded products, I assume. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. In a world where impact matters... The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University offers innovative solutions to challenges. It's ranked as the 39th most innovative public service school in the nation, and it's in the top 100 U.S. News and World Report Best Public Affairs Grad Schools. The Voinovich School is a catalyst for regional, state, and national impact in entrepreneurship, energy, and the environment. With 11 full-time faculty members and 60 professional staffers, the Voinovich School partners with nonprofit organizations, governments, and the private sector to solve problems. It's the home of the master's programs in public administration and environmental studies. Students engage in real-world learning and networking to bring their ideas to life. For more information, visit ohio.edu backslash School. I love your your passion. One of the things that um, on this podcast, the, a puzzle we try to address is why is it that some people just are so jazzed about their job? They're so passionate, <laughs> and other people, you know, I know as a coach, other people seem to have everything going for them, but they're always sort of grumpy about it. One thing I've noticed is that people who are really excited about their job, often get energy from the other things 
that they do that might be unrelated. And I am so intrigued. I have to ask you to just talk about your sort of your your hobby or your side passion. In addition to being a food addict and loving food and all of those things, you are a you a race car driver instructor. Is that is that <laughs> right? And how did that all come about? Well, there you go. That's the adrenaline junkie in me. Um, obviously, with the store now, I really don't have time to do that very much anymore. Um, but um, way back when, I had this uh, cute little car that you know could go really, really fast, and uh, racking up speeding tickets <laughs> wasn't very much fun. Um, so I joined the club. Um, the time at that time it was the Porsche Club of America, and uh, there are events that are held at racetracks. And they teach you how to drive your car at you know, wonderful speeds, and uh, there are no police radars around the corner. Actually, it's the only safe way to learn to drive a car adequately if you want to really see the performance. So that was, you know, the first um, introduction to that type of sport, and it was instant addiction. Uh, it was uh, it was very thrilling. It's a very technical sport, um, a lot of finesse. Uh, and people don't realize that it's something that you have to um, uh, really be in touch with rather than be strong and, you know, brutal to the car. Uh, so that was the first, uh, first time I did that, uh, then created a need to do it again and again and again, and by doing it multiple times, uh, I eventually became an instructor with that club and then was teaching, and then I was teaching with other clubs, and um, it became absolutely uh, a passion for, for a very long time. And uh, I think the most fun I had was when I was teaching. And I used to call it the aha moment when you finally got through to your student and they finally got it because the technique is, is quite difficult and it takes um, a lot of understanding and we often have to unlearn uh, things that we think we know how to drive. Uh, we have to unlearn before we can actually open up and learn how to drive very competently on the racetrack. And um, I love that. I love the ability to have somebody else share the passion and, and just enjoy it. And that's something that I also do in my business where I love to be able to teach people how to learn to live with you know, a gluten-free diet. So um, it's You really about- like the deep dive, don't you? You just go totally in and find everything about what you're doing, right? Always have, always have. And you know what? I always say that the day that I grow up and being out, oh, this is probably the day that I'll be boring. So I don't plan on doing that anytime soon. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, I wonder, um, before we say goodbye, if you would have any last words of um, advice for listeners who might think they have a gluten intolerance or might uh, wonder if they should see a doctor or something. How, if somebody just is starting to think, you know, I don't feel as great as I used to. First, can you answer if this can happen any time in life? And if it does seem to be happening to somebody, and how should they start sorting it out? Yeah, that's a good, good, good question. Um, the first thing to do is actually go and see a doctor and get uh, the first test, which is a simple blood test uh, to see if you're intolerant or mostly to see if you're celiac. There is no test uh, or official medical test for intolerance, but for celiac disease, it's important to know whether or not you are um, celiac because 
the difference between uh, the way I treat my diet as a celiac and somebody who is intolerant is I have to avoid every little bit of gluten, including cross-contamination. And many times people do not get the proper answers from the medical community. Uh, therefore, they go hunting off by themselves to try and figure out, um, you know, what is what is ailing me. And uh, they'll get, you know, advice from a naturopath or some other medical, uh, medically trained person that will say, hey, try the gluten-free diet. The problem with that is if you do start on a gluten-free diet and then you decide to see whether or not you are celiac, because people tend to assume they're only intolerant if they've not been tested. Um, if you want to be tested for celiac disease, you have to be on a gluten-containing diet. If you have been off gluten for an amount of time, you have to go back on it. And uh, I know a number of people who never went back to get tested just because they would be too sick if they went back to eating gluten. So it's really important before anybody embarks on a gluten-free diet for whatever reason. It does not matter. Always, if you, have, if you think you have a problem with it, um, please just go and get tested for celiac disease. It's a simple blood test to start off. If that blood test comes back part of, positive there's a follow-up test to be done to confirm celiac and if it's not that then you can decide what you do with the diet and how seriously you take the diet because uh, what it takes to make somebody with celiac disease sick is 20 parts per million or thereabouts um, to give you an idea of how much gluten that is it's equivalent to about a drop of water in your entire bathtub so that means tiny tiny amounts of gluten will make somebody with celiac disease very ill um, so it's important to know whether or not you need to avoid gluten to that level or if you can just live with avoiding eating certain products but not worrying about the cross-contamination. So it's really, really important. Most people who've been on a gluten-free diet just cannot go back uh, for the sake of being diagnosed, and they tend to not take the diet as seriously, and I'm not saying they're not avoiding gluten, but I'm just saying they don't tend to um, respect the cross-contamination the way they should. And then there's the fact that there are a lot of um, people that are asymptomatic or have very few symptoms. Um, I know celiacs that are completely asymptomatic, so they could eat an entire loaf of white bread and feel no ill effect. But if you look at the lining of their intestine, if they go for a um, gastroscopy, you'll notice the, the damage is extensive and that causes all kinds of deficiencies because when the, that part of the gut is not working function, functioning properly, it's not absorbing absolutely important and vital nutrients. And then you suffer from all the, these deficiencies that then cause other issues. So it's really important to be diagnosed or at least eliminate it um, as a possibility and deal with the diet accordingly after that. And am I correct that this is something that sort of hit you out of the blue that Absolutely. was triggered yeah. well, at midlife? Or? Well, yes, it did, but it didn't, to be honest. Um, um, celiac disease is one of the only autoimmune diseases that they know the triggers. Um, so it is, first of all, you have to have the genetic predisposition, uh, therefore the genetic code. Um, you have to have gluten in your diet. And the third one, which is the, you know, what sets it off, is uh, it is known that it is a stress to the body. It may be a physical stress, an emotional stress, whatever that body perceives as a stressful event. And most people, when you tell them this and they look back, they went, ah, mm-hmm, yep, I know what it was. Uh, and it really, it, it varies from one person to the other very much. Um, but that being said, um, gluten intolerance can be one thing. Celiac disease 
is something that is somewhat present in many people for a very long time, but we don't recognize it. And that was my case because once I was diagnosed and I learned all of this information, I, I looked back and went, mm, yeah, I had symptoms when, you know, after I had my second son, uh, where I was breastfeeding him and he was iron deficient and so was I, and they assumed it was just, well, you just had a kid. It's normal. No, it's not normal. And, and then, you know, other symptoms throughout the years where, you know, typical bloating and stuff. It's like, yeah, well, I'm so skinny, you know, it's like, I guess it's normal. I've eaten too much. It wasn't that. So if I look back, there were symptoms over the past, let's say, 20 some odd years, but nothing that would send me running to a doctor to say, hey, you know what? I bloat. You know, it's not something that we think is abnormal. It's not uh, that, let's say, the consequences didn't feel debilitating enough to say, well, there must be really something wrong with me. Because um, bear in mind, for celiac disease, there's like over 300 different types of symptoms. So a lot of these can be small. Like They can range from migraines to aches and pains to obvious, uh, you know, the ones that we know that are more current. But um, that being said... The onset for me was an operation that stressed my body, and that was it for me. But if I look back, it was there before, long before. But in cases, there are case, multiple cases like mine. I have uh, customers that walk into the store. One gentleman I met not long ago, he was 92. He's just been diagnosed. And other people, it's young infants and children that just start eating, and that's it. They're diagnosed. So it can be at any time. And it used to be, when it was originally discovered, it was thought to be a childhood disease. And that's why many doctors for many, many years would misdiagnose or assume, like, well, no, you're an adult, so you can't have celiac disease. Uh, But today the portrait of uh, celiac is quite different. Well... This is great information. If people want additional information, again, I'll say your website. It's luissansgluten.com, and that's a good starting point if people want to sort of sort out their situation or if they happen to be near Montreal and want something good to eat, right? Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate all this good information, and it's, it's energizing to hear your passion. Thank you. It was a pleasure, and thank you very much, Pat. Today we've been talking with Louise Pearl, a Canadian entrepreneur and the owner of a thriving, gluten-free grocery store and bakery. Today's tip is that sometimes your problems can be turned into career opportunities. If there's something you really need, ask yourself whether other people need it too. Do the solutions to your own issues point to a broader marketplace? This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Music